Welcome to Memory and Top 40 Music, where we revisit the top of the pop charts through the eyes of history. I'm Spoken Joe Williams. In this episode of Memory and Top 40 Music, we're going back to January 12th, 1969, the day the New York Jets of the American Football League shocked the nation by defeating the heavily favored Baltimore Colts of the National Football League to win Super Bowl III. A victory perhaps no one really thought possible, save for the brash young quarterback of the Jets, Joe Namath. And it was a victory that very well may have saved the planned merger between the upstart American Football League and the well-established National Football League. Let's go back to the late 1950s as we begin the story. The idea of creating a new football league came about when a man by the name of Lamar Hunt wanted to bring professional football to his home state of Texas, which did not have a professional football franchise. This was hot on the heels of what is known as the greatest game ever played, the 1958 National Football League championship game between the Baltimore Colts and the New York Giants. However, the National Football League commissioner, Burt Bell, denied requests to expand the NFL from its then 12-team lineup. So in August 1959, Hunt and some wealthy friends announced the creation of the American Football League, or AFL. Their game plan was to bring their new league to the anchor states of New York and California and to introduce franchises in parts of the U.S. where teams did not exist, New England, Colorado, and Texas among them. There were six original AFL franchises, the New York Titans, the Los Angeles Chargers, Dallas Texans, Houston Oilers, Denver Broncos, and a club to play in Minnesota. The Buffalo Bills and Boston Patriots were then added to the list. The NFL, in a bit of panic, offered either franchises or partial ownership stakes in its league to the AFL ownership groups, but only one accepted that being Minnesota, which became the NFL's Minnesota Vikings. Losing that franchise, the AFL replaced it with the Oakland Raiders. And suddenly, there was also a new NFL team allocated to Dallas, Texas. The first AFL draft was held in the fall of 1959, and the new league began play with its very first game on Friday night, September 9, 1960, between the Boston Patriots and the Denver Broncos. The first AFL champion were the Houston Oilers. Among the league stars in that first season was quarterback and future Republican vice presidential candidate Jack Kemp. There's plenty more to talk about regarding Super Bowl III and its impact on the AFL-NFL merger, and we'll get back to that soon. But now, let's get our countdown kicked off from January 12th, 1969. Two songs dropped out of the top ten from last week. Stormy by The Classics 4, and Who's Making Love by Johnny Taylor. That means there are two new songs in the top 10, and the first of those is at number 10. It is Bobby Vinton and I Love How You Love Me. While I Love How You Love Me was new to the top 10 this week, it was actually a return to the top 10, as the song had spent three weeks at number 9 in December before falling to number 11 last week. I Love How You Love Me spent a total of 12 weeks in the top 40, four of those in the top 10. Those three at number 9 in December of 68, and this week at number 10. The song was written by Barry Mann and Larry Kobler, and had been a number 5 hit for the Paris Sisters in October 1961. 
In fact, Billboard magazine named the Paris Sisters version as number 100 on its list of the 100 greatest girl group songs of all time. All told, Bobby Vinton hit the top 40 30 times. I Love How You Love Me was one of the nine top ten hits Vinton had over his career. After I Love How You Love Me, Vinton would not be back in the top ten until 1974's My Melody of Love. Among his top ten hits were four number ones. From 1962, Roses Are Red, My Love. From 1963, Blue Velvet. And from 1964, There I've Said It Again and Mr. Lonely. On January 25th, 1964, There I've Said It Again became the last song to top the charts before the Beatles hit number one. The next week, I Want to Hold Your Hand ascended to number one and would stay there for seven weeks as the Beatles began to take over the charts and rewrite the record books. From 1962 to 1972, Bobby Vinton hit number one more than any other male solo singer. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. At number 10, on January 12, 1969, Bobby Vinton and I Love How You Love Me. I'm Spoken Joe, and you're listening to Memory in Top 40 Music, where we relive our best memories through the greatest songs ever recorded. In this episode, we're looking at January 12, 1969, the day the New York Jets' shocking championship game win made sure the AFL-NFL merger did indeed happen. Remember to tune in to this episode's companion playlist on Spotify. All of this week's top 10 songs are included, plus plenty of extras for your enjoyment. First-year attendance for the AFL was around 16,500 per game, as compared to the 40,000-plus the NFL was drawing. The AFL, however, did secure a contract with ABC TV to air its games. The AFL instituted some new rules, such as the first two-point conversion in professional football, and it proved to be a wide-open, pass-happy brand of football, in contrast to the running game, which dominated the NFL. Each team also had a bye week. After its inaugural season, the Chargers moved from Los Angeles to San Diego. The irony of that is they just moved back to Los Angeles in 2017. In 1963, the Dallas Texans relocated to Kansas City and became the Chiefs when it became apparent they would not succeed financially in the same market as the new NFL Dallas Cowboys. And there were a couple of ownership changes, including in New York, where the Titans were purchased by Sonny Werblin, who changed their name to the Jets. Following the 1963 season, when the San Diego Chargers were the AFL champions, Chargers coach, the legendary Sid Gilman, suggested to the man who succeeded Burt Bell as NFL commissioner, Pete Rozelle, that a championship game be played between his AFL champ Chargers and the NFL's champion that season, the Chicago Bears. Roselle said no. At number nine in this week's countdown is the most successful Motown act and the most successful American vocal group. It's Diana Ross and the Supremes and their former number one hit, Love Child, down from number seven a week ago. The Supremes started as a four-voice group in Detroit. After they signed with Motown, they became known as the Supremes, and the lineup was reduced to three, Florence Ballard, Mary Wilson, and Diana Ross. The Supremes' first six releases failed to make the top 40. 
Their fortunes changed in 1963 with When the Love Light Starts Shining Through His Eyes, which peaked at number 23. Diana Ross emerged as the group's lead singer, and in 1964, the Supremes released their first number one hit, Where Did Our Love Go? That was the first of five consecutive number one songs. Where Did Our Love Go was quickly followed by Baby Love, Come See About Me, Stop in the Name of Love, and Back in My Arms. The next release, Nothing But Heartaches, halted that streak as it topped out at number 11 in September 1965. But the Supremes were right back at number one in November of 65 with I Hear a Symphony. After their next two singles made the top ten, they followed with another four straight number ones. You Can't Hurry Love, You Keep Me Hanging On, Love Is Here and Now You're Gone, and The Happening. The Happening hit number one in May 1967, and that was the last song to chart under the name The Supremes until 1970. That's because Florence Ballard left the group with Cindy Birdsong coming in, and Motown renamed the trio Diana Ross and the Supremes. Of the first four songs released under this new name, two made the top ten. And then came Love Child. Love Child was the song that dethroned the Beatles' Hey Jude after its incredible nine weeks at number one. Love Child spent 15 weeks in the top 40, two of those at number one in late November and early December 1968. It spent a total of 11 weeks in the top 10. Love Child by Diana Ross and the Supremes, this week's number nine song. The American Football League was not fading away as the NFL had hoped. In January 1964, the AFL signed a $36 million television contract with NBC, and, due to the AFL's TV revenue sharing, the league now had better financial footing to compete for players with the NFL. And the rivalry between the leagues was now at a fever pitch. In 1966, the NFL's Giants signed place kicker Pete Gogolak from the AFL's Buffalo Bills, breaking the unspoken agreement that the leagues would not sign each other's players. The bidding war was on. The financial disaster that this foretold was beyond what the clubs in either league would be able to sustain. Representatives of the NFL approached Lamar Hunt and other AFL club owners to discuss merging the two leagues. And on June 8, 1966, the merger of the two leagues was announced. The agreement stipulated that beginning in 1967, there would be a single draft of eligible college players with all NFL and AFL teams participating and a title game to be played between the champions of both leagues. The merger would be completed by 1970, and Pete Rozelle would be commissioner of the merged league, to be known as the National Football League. The league would have two conferences, the National Football Conference, made up of the NFL teams, and the American Football Conference, comprised of the AFL teams. The AFL and NFL teams would not play each other in the regular season until 1970. So for now... The AFL-NFL Championship game, now known as the Super Bowl, was the only interaction these teams had with each other. In the meantime, the AFL added its ninth and 10th teams, the Miami Dolphins and the Cincinnati Bengals. Sharing horizons that are new to us, watching the signs along the way, talking it over just the two of us. 
listening to the song at number eight together. The biggest moving song in this week's top ten comes in at number eight. Up from number seventeen a week ago, it's Crimson and Clover by Tommy James and the Shondells. Tommy James was twelve years old when he joined his first band called the Echoes. They became Tom and the Tornadoes, and then renamed the band the Shondells in honor of singer Troy Shondell, who had a hit in 1961 entitled "This Time." In 1964, Tommy James and the Shondells recorded "Hanky Panky," which was a local favorite. In 1965, the boys graduated high school and the band broke up. Tommy formed a new band called the Coachmen with a K. Unbeknownst to James, the record "Hanky Panky" caught on in Pittsburgh. He only found out when a DJ invited him there to perform the song live. James went and recruited a local band from Latrobe, Pennsylvania, to be the new Shondells. "Hanky Panky" became a number one hit in July 1966. Tommy James and the Shondells released a series of singles from 1966 through 1968, with several going top ten, including "I Think We're Alone Now," "Mirage," and "Moni Moni." But by now, James was labeled as a bubblegum pop artist, which he didn't care for at all. Tommy James angled for something more, so he pivoted to a psychedelic rock sound, which brings us to the 1969 hit "Crimson and Clover." Which was released in December 1968, and by January 12th, it was at the number eight position. The song would spend ten more weeks in the top ten and hit number one for two weeks in early February. The band followed it up with the hits "Sweet Cherry Wine" and one of my favorites, "Crystal Blue Persuasion." Tommy James fully embraced all the psychedelic period had to offer, and in March 1970, he collapsed at a Birmingham, Alabama concert. In fact, he was pronounced dead. Revived, James left the band and focused on getting clean. James didn't quit the business, though, writing a top ten hit for Alive and Kickin' called "Tighter Tighter," and then scoring a solo hit in 1971, "Dragging the Line." Tommy James and the Shondells with this week's number eight song, "Crimson and Clover." I'm Joe Williams, and you're listening to Memory in Top Forty Music. And we're taking a walk back through the top of the chart from Super Bowl Sunday, January twelfth, nineteen sixty-nine. It's time for our memory jogger feature, and in this installment of Memory Jogger, we'll remember a few key music figures who recently passed. Scott English died on November sixteenth, twenty eighteen. English was a singer and songwriter who helped pen several top forty hits. He co-wrote Barry Manilow's hit "Mandy," which in January 1975 became Manilow's first number one. Prior to that, English and Larry Weiss wrote "Bend Me, Shape Me," a top ten hit for American Breed in 1967. Scott English hit the Hot 100 twice as a singer with "High on a Hill" in March 1964, and he appeared again in March 1972 with the song "Brandy." Nope, this was not the song "Brandy," which was a hit for Looking Glass. It was the same song that Barry Manilow would rename "Mandy" to avoid confusion with that hit by Looking Glass. Scott English was 81 when he died. Eddie Reeves died on November 17, 2018. Reeves was a songwriter and record company executive. 
he co-wrote All I Ever Need Is You, a 1971 top 10 hit for Sonny and Cher. Kenny Rogers and Dottie West had a number one country hit with it in 1979. Eddie Reeves later became general manager of Warner Brothers Records. He was 79 at the time of his death. Nancy Wilson died on December 13, 2018. She was 81. Wilson was predominantly a jazz singer who hit the top 40 twice. First in 1964 with You Don't Know How Glad I Am, which peaked at number 11. And Face It Girl, It's Over, a number 29 hit in 1968. Wilson is a member of the Big Band and Jazz Hall of Fame, and she has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Nancy Wilson recorded more than 70 albums and was a three-time Grammy winner. Joe Osborne died on December 14, 2018. He was a bass guitar player who was part of the renowned studio session group known as The Wrecking Crew. After a stint in Ricky Nelson's group and playing on songs like Travelin' Man, Osborne began working as a studio musician and became a member of The Wrecking Crew, which played on thousands of recordings in the 1960s and early 70s. Among the hit songs on which Osborne can be heard are Bridge Over Troubled Water, Aquarius Let the Sunshine In, For All We Know, Midnight Confessions, and Neil Diamond's Holly Holy. Pay special attention to Osborne's bass on Holly Holy when you listen to this episode's companion playlist on Spotify. Joe Osborne was 81 years of age. Galt McDermott died on December 17, 2018. McDermott wrote the music for the Broadway smash Hair. The Broadway cast album won a Grammy in 1969, while Aquarius Let the Sunshine In by the Fifth Dimension spent six weeks at number one, and the title track Hair by the Cowsills got up to number two. You may know a couple of other songs McDermott helped write for Hair, Easy to be Hard, a number four hit for Three Dog Night, and Good Morning Starshine, a number three hit for Oliver. Galt McDermott died the day before his 90th birthday. Norman Gimbel died on December 19, 2018. He was 91. Gimbel wrote the lyrics for Canadian Sunset by Andy Williams, Ready to Take a Chance Again by Barry Manilow from the movie Foul Play, Killing Me Softly with His Song by Roberta Flack, and I Got a Name by Jim Croce. He also wrote the themes for the TV series Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. He wrote the 1964 top 10 hit by Stan Getz, The Girl from Ipanema, which is credited with driving the bossa nova craze of the time. Honey Lantry died on December 23, 2018. She was the drummer for the British pop group The Honeycombs, who rode the wave of the Beatles-led British invasion and hit the top 40 in the fall of 1964 with the million-seller Have I the Right. It was their only top 40 hit. Honey Lantry was a rarity as a female drummer at the time. Her brother, John Lantry, was the Honeycombs' bass guitarist. Have I the Right was one of three number one hits the Honeycombs had in the UK. Honey Lantry was 75. Christine McGuire, the eldest of the singing McGuire sisters, died on December 28, 2018. She was 92. The McGuire sisters had 19 top 40 singles from 1954 through 1961, 
The biggest was Sincerely, which was number one for six weeks in early 1955. Sincerely was one of three million-selling songs the trio of sisters recorded, along with Picnic and Sugar Time. The McGuire sisters have been inducted into the National Broadcasting Hall of Fame, the Vocal Group Hall of Fame, and the Hit Parade Hall of Fame. Ray Sawyer died on December 31, 2018. Sawyer was a vocalist with Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show, later known simply as Dr. Hook. Sawyer was identifiable by an eye patch and cowboy hat. The eye patch, he said, made him resemble Captain Hook from Peter Pan, which was the inspiration for the group's name. Sawyer sang lead on 1973's The Cover of Rolling Stone, which was written by Shel Silverstein. Dr. Hook had 10 top 40 hits, including Sylvia's Mother, Only 16, When You're in Love with a Beautiful Woman, A Little Bit More, and The Cover of Rolling Stone. They made the top 10 six times. Ray Sawyer was 81. Also on December 31, 2018, Dean Ford died. Hailing from Scotland, Ford was lead vocalist for the group Marmalade, and he co-wrote the group's hit Reflections of My Life, which was their only top 40 hit in the U.S. It spent three weeks at number 10 in May 1970, and it's one of my favorites. In the United Kingdom, Marmalade's biggest hit was a remake of the Beatles' Obladi Oblada, which they took to number one on the British charts in January 1969. Dean Ford was 72 years old. The captain half of Captain and Tennille, Daryl Dragon, died on January 2, 2019. Captain and Tennille had a string of hits starting with their number one debut, Love Will Keep Us Together, in 1975. They followed that with eight top 40 hits, including Shop Around, You Never Done It Like That, and Do That To Me One More Time. Dragon was given the nickname Captain by Mike Love of the Beach Boys. Dragon played keyboards for the Beach Boys for about five years and began wearing a nautical captain's hat, for which Love coined the nickname Captain Keyboard. The captain, Daryl Dragon, was 76 when he died. Eric Haydock died on January 5, 2018. Haydock was an original member of the British band The Hollies. He was with them from 1962 through 1966 and played on the band's earliest hits, Just One Look, Look Through Any Window, their first U.S. Top 40 hit, and I'm Alive, a number one record in Britain. The Hollies were known for their fabulous harmonies and later had the international hits Bus Stop, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother, Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress, and The Air That I Breathe. Eric Haydock was inducted with the Hollies into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010. He was 75. Larry Cunningham died on January 10, 2019. Cunningham was a member of the R&B group The Floaters, which had a number two hit in 1977 with Float On. And while the floaters topped the R&B charts and hit number one in New Zealand and the UK with this song, they proved to be a one-hit wonder and never appeared again on the pop charts. Larry Cunningham was 67 years old. Maxine Brown died on January 21, 2019. She was a country singer after a stint with the sibling trio The Browns, which featured Maxine, her brother Jim Ed, and sister Bonnie. The Browns had three pop hits in 1959 and 60, with The Three Bells going all the way to number one. 
The Browns are members of the Country Music Hall of Fame. Maxine Brown, the last surviving member of the Browns, was 87 at the time of her death. Scott, Eddie, Nancy, Joe, Galt, Norman, Honey, Christine, Ray, Dean, Daryl, Eric, Larry, and Maxine. Thanks for the music and the memories. Now back to our countdown. Holding steady at number seven this week is the Boy Wonder from Saginaw, Michigan. It's Stevie Wonder and For Once in My Life. Stevie Wonder hit the charts as a 13-year-old in 1963 with Fingertips, which went all the way to number one. Wonder continued to chart after that, his songs ever increasing in maturity. He'd made five more appearances in the top ten before he hit with For Once in My Life. The song was written by Ron Miller as a ballad, but Wonder's up-tempo version is the best-known recording of the song. Motown head Barry Gordy didn't like Wonder's version and had to be talked into allowing the song to be released as a single. For Once in My Life spent 13 weeks in the top 40, eight of those in the top 10. The song peaked at number two for two weeks. It seems we talk about Wonder's age when he released Fingertips, but not afterwards. So don't forget, he was still only 18 years old when For Once in My Life became a hit. Stevie followed this up with five more top 10 hits. My Sharia Moore, Yester Me, Yester You, Yesterday, Sign, Seal, Delivered, I'm Yours, Heaven Help Us All, and If You Really Love Me, before he hit the top spot in 1973 with Superstition, his first number one since Fingertips ten years earlier. Turns out, Stevie was just getting started, as he'd go on to hit number one eight more times with You Are the Sunshine of My Life, You Haven't Done Nothing, I Wish, Sir Duke, Ebony and Ivory with Paul McCartney, I Just Call to Say I Love You, Part-Time Lover, and That's What Friends Are For with Dionne Warwick, Elton John, and Gladys Knight. That's on top of his other top ten hits from the 70s and 80s, Higher Ground, Living for the City, Boogie On, Reggae Woman, Send One Your Love, Master Blaster, That Girl, and lastly, 1985's Go Home. Nineteen of Wonder's songs topped the R&B charts, and he has had 70 Grammy Award nominations, taking home 22 trophies. Stevie Wonder and the number seven song on January 12th, 1969, For Once in My Life. Let's return now to our Super Bowl story. January 15th, 1967 witnessed the first ever AFL-NFL championship game. Yes, that was its official name at the time as the NFL's Green Bay Packers beat the AFL's Kansas City Chiefs 35-10. The next year, the Packers won again, just as handily, over the Oakland Raiders 33-14. It wasn't until 1970 when the name Super Bowl was officially applied, though it had first been coined by Kansas City Chiefs owner Lamar Hunt back during the merger meetings, and had been used frequently in the interim. The use of Roman numerals in identifying Super Bowl games started with the fifth game, played in January 1971. While the AFL felt its product was on par with that offered by the NFL, most did not agree. The AFL was still widely viewed as an inferior league. The two one-sided AFL-NFL championship game results were pointed to as evidence, and in spite of the planned merger, there was uncertainty about whether all of the AFL franchises would survive. 
As the third AFL-NFL championship game approached, there were rumors that another championship game loss for the AFL could have long-lasting effects. There was even talk of calling off the merger completely. So here came the big game, which would ultimately be known as Super Bowl III. The NFL champion Baltimore Colts were a whopping 18-point favorites over the New York Jets. Famous oddsmaker Jimmy the Greek Snyder set Baltimore as 17.5-point favorites. Others had the Colts as up to 21-point favorites. The lead sports columnist of the Detroit Free Press, Joe Falls, predicted the Colts would win 270 to nothing. All this was an insult and source of anger for the Jets. The Colts had the best defense in the NFL, and the Jets had allowed twice as many points as the Colts that season. The Colts had a regular season record of 13 wins and one loss, and were perceived to be one of the greatest teams ever assembled. They were said to be better than the Green Bay Packers, who had won the first two Super Bowls. The Colts were led by coach Don Shula, and with Hall of Fame quarterback Johnny Unitas injured, backup Earl Morrill took the reins and won the NFL's Most Valuable Player Award that season. They were led by the imposing Bubba Smith on defense. The Jets had an 11-3 record that season. They were led by coach Weeb Eubank, who had previously coached the Colts, and quarterback Joe Namath. Namath went to the University of Alabama to play football for coach Bear Bryant after his first choice, the University of Maryland, refused to admit him due to low college board scores. Alabama went 29-4 with Namath at quarterback and won the 1964 National Championship. He was the 12th overall selection in the NFL draft by the St. Louis Cardinals and the first overall pick in the AFL draft by the Jets. It stunned the football world when he signed with the Jets for an unheard of $427,000, oh, and a green Lincoln Continental. Namath was the AFL's Rookie of the Year in 1965. In 1967, he became the first pro quarterback to pass for over 4,000 yards in a season. Namath won the Hickok Belt in 1968 as the top professional athlete of the year, only the third football player so honored after Otto Graham and Jim Brown. He won the American Football League's Most Valuable Player Award in 1968 and 69. Joe Willie Namath, Broadway Joe. He was much more than a football player. He was a celebrity. As he was known to say, I like my girls blonde and my Johnny Walker red. Namath was as much known for keeping company with a series of beautiful women and his long hair hanging out below his helmet and his long sideburns and for wearing white cleats as he was for his football prowess. And when the Colts beat the Cleveland Browns 34 to nothing for the NFL championship and the Jets defeated the Oakland Raiders 27-23 for the AFL championship, the stage was set. Just like For Once in My Life at number 7, the song at number 6 stayed right where it was the week before. Cloud Nine by The Great Temptations. In March 1961, five young men under the name The Elgins successfully auditioned for Motown head Barry Gordy. Otis Williams, Eddie Kendricks, Paul Williams, Melvin Franklin, and Elbridge Bryant signed with Motown and renamed the group The Temptations. A string of early releases didn't bring much success, in spite of an appearance or two on the R&B charts. Impatient, Elbridge Bryant departed and was replaced by David Ruffin, thus forming the Temptations' classic lineup. 
Then in early 1964 came a song co-written by Smokey Robinson, The Way You Do the Things You Do, which was the major breakthrough The Temptations had been searching for. It was a number 11 hit. By the end of 64, The Temptations had released their first number one single, My Girl. My Girl was the first of four number one hits the group racked up. The others were I Can't Get Next to You, Just My Imagination, and Papa Was a Rolling Stone. They had 37 top 40 hits over the years, 38 if you include the 1991 Rod Stewart hit, The Motown Song, on which The Temptations were featured. The Temptations topped the R&B charts 15 times. Among their other hits were Since I Lost My Baby, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, Get Ready, and I Wish It Would Rain. Changes came as Ruffin left, replaced by Dennis Edwards, and Norman Whitfield began producing their songs. Cloud Nine was the first Temptation single to feature Edwards' lead vocals, and the song signaled the group's move into psychedelic music. Cloud Nine won the Grammy Award for Best Rhythm and Blues Group Performance, the first Grammy ever collected by Motown Records. The song spent 11 weeks in the top 40, three of those in the top 10, peaking at number 6. Personnel changes would continue in the 70s with the departures of Eddie Kendricks and Paul Williams, but the band played on. In fact, the Temptations continue to perform today, with Otis Williams still leading the group. The Temptations have sold 16 million albums, won three Grammys, were inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame, are in the Vocal Group Hall of Fame, the R&B Music Hall of Fame, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and had a TV miniseries made about them based on The Temptations' autobiography by Otis Williams. And there is a phenomenal stage show, Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of The Temptations, which is now on Broadway. I saw it at a pre-Broadway production in Washington, D.C. and loved it from start to finish. Holding down the sixth place on our countdown this week, The Temptations and Cloud Nine. In addition to the memories these great songs bring back, let's see what else was going on in the world in January 1969. Of course, this episode of Memory and Top 40 Music is focused on Super Bowl III and its impact on the AFL-NFL merger. Lyndon Johnson was President of the United States, and would be until the 20th of January when Richard Nixon took the oath of office. U.S. and North Vietnamese peace talks began in Paris. The Soviet Union launched Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5, as well as two exploration vehicles headed for Venus. Soyuz 4 and 5 docked while on orbit on January 15th, and they accomplished the first-ever transfer of humans from one orbiting craft to another. The trial of Sirhan Sirhan began for the murder of Robert F. Kennedy. Jury selection began in the trial of Clay Shaw, the only trial of a person accused of conspiracy in the assassination of President John Kennedy. The fastest train in the U.S. up to then, the Metroliner, began service between Washington and New York. Publishers of the Saturday Evening Post announced the weekly magazine would cease publication with its February 8th issue after almost 148 years of operation. Roy Campanella and Stan Musial were elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Margaret Court won the Australian Open women's tennis title over Billie Jean King, and Rod Laver won the men's title. Led Zeppelin's debut album was released. The Beatles staged their final live performance on the rooftop of Apple Music's London headquarters. The 42-minute session was halted by police after noise complaints. 
Notable births in January 1969 included supermodel Christy Turlington, musicians Marilyn Manson and Dave Grohl, actors Norman Reedus, Jason Bateman, and Patton Oswalt, TV personality Melissa Rivers, and hockey player Brendan Shanahan. Notable deaths in January 1969 included actor Howard McNear, who was Floyd the Barber on The Andy Griffith Show. Tom Zachary, the man who gave up Babe Ruth's 60th home run in 1927. Former CIA director Alan Dulles and Broadway dancer Irene Castle. I'm Spoken Joe. Now, back to our countdown. Climbing five spots from a week ago, at number five this week is Hooked on a Feeling by B.J. Thomas. This was B.J. Thomas' fifth time in the top 40 and his biggest hit to date. His 1966 debut song, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, was also a top 10 hit. In January 1970, B.J. Thomas would have the first of his two number one hits with a song from the Paul Newman, Robert Redford classic film, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. His other number one would come in 1975, Hey Won't You Play, another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong song. Over his career, Thomas would have 14 top 40 hits, five of which went top 10. In the 1980s, Thomas found success on the country charts with songs such as Whatever Happened to Old Fashioned Love and New Looks from an Old Lover. Hooked on a Feeling spent 12 weeks in the top 40, five of those weeks in the top 10, peaking at number 5. Hooked on a Feeling would ultimately be a number one hit for Blue Swede in 1974. You may remember their intro, Ooga Chaka, Ooga Ooga, Ooga Chaka. Yes, we've included that one as well on this Memory and Top 40 Music Episodes companion playlist, which you can find on Spotify. B.J. Thomas with this week's number five song, Hooked on a Feeling. It was just a few days before the big championship game. Joe Namath was at the Miami Touchdown Club to accept their award as its Player of the Year. While Namath was speaking at the event, a Colts fan in the audience yelled out to Namath and said in no uncertain terms that the Colts were going to crush the Jets. This proved to be the tipping point for Namath. He and the Jets had been hearing nonstop about how they didn't belong on the same field as the Colts. In fact, even Atlanta Falcons coach Norm Van Brocklin, a former player and future Hall of Famer, said he'd tell everyone his assessment of Namath after he plays his first pro game on Sunday. Wow. So Namath responded to the heckler in the crowd, I'm tired of hearing it. I've got news for you. We're going to win this game. I guarantee it. There it was. And win it, they did. At Miami's Orange Bowl that Sunday, January 12th, 1969, the Jets beat the Colts 16-7. The Jets knew there was no way the vaunted Colts defense would adjust its approach, so the Jets' game plan was to call their plays based on how the Colts set up on defense. Most of the Jets' offensive plays during the game were called as audibles at the line of scrimmage once Namath saw the Colt defense. The plays were not called in the huddle as usual. Baltimore turned the ball over five times, and Namath completed 17 of 28 passes for 206 yards and was named the game's MVP. The Jets featured a punishing running attack, courtesy of Matt Snell and Emerson Boozer, as the Jets ran the ball 43 times that day. In fact, Namath didn't throw a single pass in the fourth quarter as the Jets controlled the clock. And control the ball, control the clock, is what the Jets did. 
they possessed the ball for over 36 minutes throughout the game, the Colts less than 24 minutes. The Colts didn't score until there were three and a half minutes left in the game after Johnny Unitas was sent in to relieve Morrill. The image of Broadway Joe jogging off the field with his index finger pointed skyward is one that perfectly sums up that game. Suddenly, the AFL could not be taken lightly. It could not be dismissed. An AFL team won the football championship. They'd do it again the next year, too, the last season prior to the NFL-AFL merger. Even then, the Kansas City Chiefs were 16-point underdogs going into Super Bowl IV before defeating the Minnesota Vikings 23-7. The victories by the Jets and the Chiefs forever left the pre-merger Super Bowl series knotted at two games apiece. We've got an instrumental in the number four slot this week. It's Soulful Strut by Young Holt Unlimited. Red Holt, L.D. Young, and Ken Chaney comprised Young Holt Unlimited. Holt and Young were both former members of the Ramsey Lewis Trio. Holt Young featured a soul and jazz sound. With a slightly different lineup, the group had previously been known as the Holt Young Trio, and that threesome had a number 40 hit, Whack Whack, in 1967. As Young Holt Unlimited, Soulful Strut would be their one top 40 hit. Soulful Strut spent 12 weeks in the top 40, five of those weeks in the top 10. Soulful Strut was originally recorded by Barbara Acklin under the title Am I the Same Girl, and it got as high as number 79. The record company stripped Acklin's vocal and separately released the instrumental track from that record. It was renamed Soulful Strut, and up the charts it went. Holt Young Unlimited never matched the success of Soulful Strut, and by 1974, the group disbanded. Holt formed Red Holt Unlimited, and Young played with small groups in his Chicago hometown. At number four this week, the same as last week, Soulful Strut by Holt Young Unlimited. Let's take a look at what else was happening on the charts this week. There were only four new songs in the Hot 100 this week. The highest of those was at number 91. Games People Play by Joe South. The biggest jump in the Hot 100 was Build Me Up Buttercup by The Foundations, which surged 36 places up to number 48. There were only two new songs in the top 40, Bella Linda by The Grassroots at number 38, and California Soul by The Fifth Dimension at number 34. The biggest mover in the top 40 was The Bee Gees, I Started a Joke, which went from number 40 last week to number 19 this week. There are just two former number one songs in this week's countdown, Hey Jude by The Beatles at number 30, and Love Child by Diana Ross and The Supremes at number 9. Future number one songs in this week's countdown are Everyday People by Sly and the Family Stone at number 26, and Crimson and Clover by Tommy James and the Shondells at number 8. I mentioned Hey Jude by The Beatles at number 30, Hey Jude by Wilson Pickett is the number 27 song this week. Next phase, new wave, dance craze, anyways, here's a song at number three. Moving up two notches to number three this week is Glenn Campbell and Wichita Lineman. Wichita Lineman is one of 21 top 40 songs Glenn Campbell released throughout his career, and it was the first of his five top 10 songs on the pop charts. It also began a string of nine consecutive top 40 hits for Campbell. Glenn Campbell was born in Billstown, Arkansas, and when he was 22, he moved to L.A. and joined The Wrecking Crew, 
the famed group of studio musicians who played on hundreds of Top 40 hits. During Campbell's tenure with the Wrecking Crew, he also played on several Beach Boys recordings, such as I Get Around, Don't Worry Baby, and California Girls. Campbell toured with the Beach Boys and then played on the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds album. As a solo artist, Campbell's first single was 1961's Turn Around, Look at Me. In June 1967, Campbell hit number one on the country charts with Gentle On My Mind. In December of 67, his album, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, was number one on Billboard's country album chart. At the February 1968 Grammy Awards, Campbell won four Grammy Awards for Gentle On My Mind and By the Time I Get to Phoenix. Less than a week later, he won three Academy of Country Music Awards. Then, in October of 68, Campbell won the Entertainer of the Year Award and Male Vocalist of the Year at the Country Music Association Awards. All of that before Wichita Lineman was released. Wichita Lineman peaked at number three this very week, and by month's end, the TV show, The Glen Campbell Good Time Hour, made its debut on the CBS network. It would run for three and a half years. Suffice to say, Glenn Campbell was red hot. In June 1969, the John Wayne Western True Grit was released, co-starring Glenn Campbell. This was the film for which Wayne finally won the Best Actor Academy Award for his role as Rooster Cogburn. The next year, Campbell starred in the movie Norwood along with Joe Namath. A few months after Wichita Lineman's peak, Campbell was back in the top 10 with Galveston. He would finally hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1975 with Rhinestone Cowboy, and then again in 1977 with Southern Nights, which would be his last top 10 hit on the pop charts. Campbell is a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame. Over his career, he won eight Academy of Country Music Awards, while also winning the Pioneer Award in 1998 and the Career Achievement Award in 2016. Campbell won seven Grammy Awards, including the 2012 Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. And three of Campbell's recordings have won the Grammy Hall of Fame Award, Gentle on My Mind, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, and Wichita Lineman. I love the guitar solo in the middle of Wichita Lineman, which was played by Campbell himself. It conjures up to me a classic Western picture, a big, bold, never-ending, sun-drenched landscape. Wichita Lineman also contains what I think is one of the all-time great lyrics, and I need you more than want you, and I want you for all time. It was written by Jimmy Webb, who wrote a bevy of popular songs, including Up, Up, and Away, The Worst That Could Happen, All I Know, The Highwaymen, and two other Glen Campbell hits, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, and Galveston. Wichita Lineman was a number one country hit, number one in Canada, and also in, of all places, Yugoslavia. Wichita Lineman is number 195 on Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Wichita Lineman entered the top 40 on November 16, 1968 at number 23 with a 44-position jump on the chart. The very next week it was in the top 10 where it would stay for nine weeks. In total, Wichita Lineman was in the top 40 for 13 weeks. I mentioned Campbell's history on the pop charts, 21 top 40 hits, including 5 top 10s and 2 number 1s. On the country charts, he had 55 top 40 hits, 27 of which went top 10, with 5 of those hitting number 1. Glenn Campbell died of Alzheimer's disease in 2017 at the age of 81. 
On January 12, 1969, Glenn Campbell's Wichita Lineman was the third most popular song in America. Interestingly, with the merger of the two football leagues, there would have to be some realignment since the NFL had more teams than the AFL. To make sure both of the new NFL conferences were balanced, three NFL teams moved into the new American Football Conference. They were the Cleveland Browns, Pittsburgh Steelers, and, go figure, the Baltimore Colts. The Jets have never made it back to the Super Bowl. The Colts did, but only after sneaking out of Baltimore and relocating to Indianapolis. There would be another Baltimore-New York Super Bowl in 2001, but that involved the Ravens and the Giants. There would be one other, probably equally shocking, Baltimore-New York championship contested in 1969. That's when the Miracle Mets beat the Baltimore Orioles to win baseball's World Series in October that year. Colts coach Don Shula would go on to win a Super Bowl. In fact, he did it twice as coach of the Miami Dolphins. He's a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame as is Joe Namath. But five months after this historic upset, Joe Namath quit football. As unbelievable as that may sound, it's true. Namath was co-owner of a New York City nightclub, Bachelors 3, which was said to have been frequented by mobsters and gamblers. The league told Namath to sell or he'd be suspended. But the 26-year-old Namath was furious that Pete Rozelle would interfere with his personal life. Roselle was serving as commissioner of both the AFL and NFL in advance of the merger. Namath wouldn't sell, so on June 6th, in a tearful press conference, Joe Namath announced he was quitting football. But Namath soon realized he was sacrificing the career he loved, so following negotiations with Roselle, on July 15th, Namath announced he agreed to sell his interest in the nightclub and return to the Jets. Namath's star did not dim, not at all. Namath the Celebrity was everywhere. There was the Joe Namath electric football game. I know, because I had it. He appeared in movies, most notably CC and Company with Anne Margaret. He hosted his own TV talk show, The Joe Namath Show. He guest-hosted The Tonight Show, and appeared on numerous other shows like The Brady Bunch and Here's Lucy. There were commercials for Schick, Ovaltine, Coca-Cola, Hanes Pantyhose, and a Noxima commercial with Farrah Fawcett. There was a Broadway Joe's Hamburger Joint and a Joe Namath Men's Clothing Collection. Later, he acted in theatrical plays and, in 1985, Namath was part of the broadcast crew for ABC's Monday Night Football with Frank Gifford and O.J. Simpson. Beginning in 1970, after not missing a single game during his first five years in pro football, Namath suffered a series of debilitating injuries to his knees, wrist, shoulder, and hamstring, which caused him to miss nearly half of the next 60 games. But in a 1972 game against those same Colts, Joe Willie threw for nearly 500 yards and had five touchdown passes. After a single season with the Los Angeles Rams in 1977, Joe Namath retired. There was a Sports Illustrated article in 2014 in which Kansas City Chiefs linebacker Willie Lanier talked about how being seen as the outcast league really forged a brotherhood among AFL players. It was so strong that the night the Jets won the Super Bowl, he and Chiefs teammates Buck Buchanan and Emmett Thomas made a spontaneous trip to the Jets team hotel in Fort Lauderdale just to congratulate them. In that same article, Don Shula spoke of how hard it was to be the first team and first coach to lose to the AFL. As one writer, Kent Anderson, put it, 
None of the outlandishness and unbridled attention that would become the Super Bowl would have happened without a team with a brash quarterback and a solid supporting cast, and a guarantee that still reverberates 50 years later. Okay, so we're up to the number two song on this week's countdown, and it's by eight people, representing two different acts, both of which we've already heard from in the countdown. It's Diana Ross and the Supremes, and The Temptations with I'm Gonna Make You Love Me. Earlier, I shared the story of the Supremes up through this week's number nine hit, Love Child, but the magical songwriting trio Holland Dozier Holland had departed Motown early in 1968. Lamont Dozier and brothers Brian and Eddie Holland were the authors of so many of the Supremes' hits, and without Holland Dozier Holland around, Motown suffered on the charts, and that included the Supremes. The Supremes had nearly half their single releases over a two-year period fail to get into the top 20. The record company arranged some joint efforts between the Supremes and the Temptations. I'm Gonna Make You Love Me was the most successful work resulting from the collaboration. Diana Ross and the Supremes and the Temptations made two joint albums, toured together, and had two TV specials on NBC. I'm Gonna Make You Love Me debuted in the Hot 100 at number 57 in early December 1968. Three weeks later, it had rocketed into the top 10. This week, it moved up one from last week's number three slot. It spent two weeks at number two. I'm Gonna Make You Love Me, featuring lead vocals by Diana Ross and Eddie Kendricks, spent 12 weeks in the top 40, eight of those in the top 10. By the way, the spoken lines in the middle of the song are done by Diana Ross and Otis Williams. The last charting single with Diana Ross as part of the Supremes, under any name combination you'd like, was the number one song, Someday We'll Be Together. Ross went on to a very successful solo career, scoring six number ones, including Ain't No Mountain High Enough and Touch Me in the Morning. As for her former mates, the group reverted back to the name The Supremes, and they hit the top 40 eight times. The most successful of those songs was 1970's Stoned Love, a number seven hit with Gene Terrell, Diana Ross's replacement, on lead vocals. Among their other songs, I want to mention one of my favorites. The Supremes collaborated with the Four Tops in 1970 on a fantastic version of River Deep, Mountain High. It's on the companion playlist for this episode. Go ahead and give it a listen. Diana Ross and the Supremes and the Temptations holding down the number two spot on this week's countdown with I'm Gonna Make You Love Me. Before we get to the song, which held on to the number one position for a fifth consecutive week, let's do a quick review. The song at number 10 is I Love How You Love Me by Bobby Vinton. Number nine is Love Child by Diana Ross and the Supremes. At number eight, Crimson and Clover by Tommy James and the Shondells. Stevie Wonder has the number seven song for Once in My Life. At number six, The Temptations and Cloud Nine. B.J. Thomas sings the song in the number five position, Hooked on a Feeling. Number four is Soulful Strut by Young Holt Unlimited. Wichita Lineman by Glenn Campbell is at number three. Number two is I'm Gonna Make You Love Me by Diana Ross and the Supremes and the Temptations. And the number one song on January 12, 1969, for the fifth consecutive week, is Marvin Gaye and his classic recording of I Heard It Through the Grapevine. I Heard It Through the Grapevine debuted in the Hot 100 at number 34. Then it went to number 16, number 4, and then to number 1. 
Stop and think about that for a second. This is the song's eighth week in the top 40 and fifth week at number one. I Heard It Through the Grapevine would be number one again for the next two weeks, giving it a total of seven weeks atop the charts. The song would ultimately have a 15-week run in the top 40, with 11 of those weeks spent in the top 10. It was, at the time, the biggest single ever released by Motown, to be eclipsed by the Jackson 5's I'll Be There. And, to complete the thought, that song was the biggest-selling Motown single of all time until the 1981 hit by Lionel Richie and Diana Ross, Endless Love. I Heard It Through the Grapevine was written by Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong a few years earlier, and it was a number two hit for Gladys Knight and the Pips in 1967. As I mentioned, I Heard It Through the Grapevine was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for seven weeks. It was number one on the R&B charts for those same seven weeks. The song also hit number one in the UK. In 2004, Rolling Stone placed I Heard It Through the Grapevine at number 80 on its list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Marvin Gaye started with Motown as a session player, playing the drums on early Motown songs. His first top 40 single was Hitchhike in 1962, and his first top 10 was 1963's Pride and Joy. He also made a name for himself with a series of duets he recorded with Mary Wells, Kim Weston, and, most notably, Tammy Terrell. After Pride and Joy in 1963, Marvin Gaye hit the top ten seven times over the next five years, with solo hits like How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You, and duets with Tammy Terrell such as Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing and You're All I Need to Get By. But on December 14, 1968, Gaye found success at a very different level when I Heard It Through the Grapevine first hit number one. Gay hit the top ten two more times in 1969, and then in 1970, he wrote and recorded What's Going On. But Barry Gordy felt the song was too political for radio and wouldn't allow its release. Gay refused to record anything else for Motown in protest. Gordy changed his mind, and What's Going On was released in 1971, whereupon it became a number two hit on the pop charts. Social commentary remained a focus for Gay, who followed up with the number four hit, Mercy, Mercy Me, and then topped the charts once again with Let's Get It On in 1973. Marvin Gaye would have his third number one song in 1977 with Got to Give It Up. Gay had 18 top ten hits over his career. He died in April 1984, shot to death by his father. In 1987, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he later received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. He is now a member of the Rhythm and Blues Music Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame. I Heard It Through the Grapevine, the number one song in the U.S. on January 12, 1969, the same day the extraordinary young quarterback of the New York Jets, Joe Namath, came through on his guarantee that the Jets would beat the Baltimore Colts and become the champions of professional football. And those were the top 10 songs on January 12, 1969, the day the Jets' victory in Super Bowl III assured the merger between the AFL and the NFL. I hope you enjoyed our countdown and our telling of the AFL-NFL merger and the Joe Namath story. What did you hear in this episode that brought back a memory? Please share it send a note to memory at spokenjoe.com. 
Episodes of Memory and Top 40 Music are available on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, and just about anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Give us a rating and some feedback, and please subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and don't forget to listen to this episode's companion playlist on Spotify. All you need is the free Spotify account. Once on Spotify, search for Memory in Top 40, so you can enjoy this and all of our companion playlists. Thanks for listening to Memory in Top 40 Music. I'm Spoken Joe.